to do a little bit more, I hope it will not be too boring. Today is the test uh, of pure theory. Today, Lacan, sexual difference. I will try to draw some consequences. Uh, uh, and tomorrow, Hegel, the limits of Hegel. Okay, so I warn you, it will be theory. Uh, in a first approach, of course, there is nothing shocking about the link between ontology, I hope it works, ontology and sexual difference. Such a link is the key feature of pre-modern cosmologies, which explain the origin of the universe out of some kind of primordial Big Bang struggle between a masculine and a feminine cosmic principle, light and darkness, heaven and earth, yin and yang, and so on. Back in the hippie era of 1960s, when I was young, I remember reading a book by Alan Watts, the Zen popularizer, where he explained how, in the simple activity of lovemaking, penis penetrating vagina, the moving out and in, the whole cosmos resonates. The two opposing cosmic principles are dancing with each other. And I remember how we all fit, we all felt so exalted, you know, so that we could say, no, it's not just I want to screw that girl, it's that I want to do a deeply spiritual thing, the whole cosmos will resonate in it, and so on. What we call modern disenchantment of the universe is not only the assertion of the gap between the meaningless cold objective reality accessible to mathematicized science and the subjective universe of meaning, which we project onto reality, but underlying this gap is a desexualization of reality. And I think it is against this background that one should measure Lacan's achievement. He reasserts the ontological status of sexual difference. The problem is, how can he, in a way, resexualize the universe without regressing into a pre-scientific mythology? Because for all modern transcendental philosophy, sexual difference is deontologized. It's reduced to an ontic feature of some entities, human race, some animals, and so on. If one ontologizes sexual difference, one is immediately accused of anthropomorphism. So again, how does Lacan do it? Okay. The first answer is clear. That's the first formula, then we'll go much deeper. That first, for Lacan, sexual difference is purely formal, in the sense that sexual difference, the way it structures our symbolic universe. For Lacan, the way sexual difference functions is the, in the human universe is not immediately linked to biological functions of sexuality. So that even, I use here the expression of my Slovene colleague Alenka Zupancic, even natural sexuality can be sexualized. There you can see the formal status of properly human sexuality. Like, you can imagine a biological, what do I mean by this gap between formal structure and immediate reality. You can well imagine a couple 
making love, or to put it more brutally, copulating, but without any excitement doing it as a pure instrumental activity. Just, it's literally, you, I can imagine, maybe it even happened to me, I'm not sure, but like, uh, you know, doing love in a totally non-sexual way. On the other hand, I can imagine, we all know this, uh, doing things which have nothing to do with sexuality, I mean, in the biological sense, but they can be somehow sexualized. Okay, maybe you heard it. The example I like to use is that of, uh, imagine I meet one of you and imagine a very simple act. I squeeze your hand. We shake hands. That's normal. But imagine that after the first squeeze, I don't let your hand go, but I, I still hold it and go on squeezing it rhythmically. <laughs> Admit it, your first association would be there is something pervert in it, what do I want, and so on and so on. No, you see the point. A purely nothing directly erotic about it, but this pure act of protraction, repetition, somehow sexualizes it. But this brings us already to the first key point of Lacan, that uh, this ability of sexuality to spill over different spheres is for Lacan not the sign of the strength of sexuality, but the sign of its weakness, precisely because it never works, as it were, in its own domain, it has to, it has to expand. So, uh, the first indication should be the following one, I think. For Lacan to sexualize the universe, insofar as for Lacan, sexuality is inherently linked to failure, incompleteness, and so on, to sexualize the universe uh, in, means that we should opt for a different ontology, ontology of incompleteness, of a deadlock, and so on, which is why I think John Cobject was right when, in her classical text, The Euthanasia of Reason, he read as the first philosopher who came close, without knowing it, to Lacan's notion of sexual difference, Immanuel Kant, with his two, two sets of antinomies, mathematical antinomies, dynamic antinomies. The idea being there that it's exactly, in a way, the Lacanian not all. You know, Lacan's point is that if you extrapolate concepts we use, or we are forced to use, they are our transcendental a priori, to describe reality, we get into a deadlock. This impossibility of getting it all, of to totalize our notion of reality, and uh, I claim that the truly subversive thing that Lacan compels us to do is, sorry if I sound pretentious, I don't have time to develop all this now, but I will try, is that one has to make here a step from Kant to Hegel, which means Kant remains too epistemological. He still presupposes some objective reality out there, just because of the limitation of our categories, we cannot get at it. Hegel's step is, what if we transpose this 
structure of failure, hindrance, you cannot get it, you get involved in antagonism into the thing itself. It's a little bit like, you know, and I will conclude with, sorry for this megalomania, quantum physics. Uh, I was here, imprecise till now. You know that there is, I was convinced now, reading close, more closely stuff, there is a gap between uh, Heisenberg and Bohr. Bohr is the good guy, I'm more and more convinced. And don't be afraid, I will not quote you now the 11th time, that boring story about uh, why do you have a horseshoe about, about you. No, no, no. What I want to say is that uh, precisely Heisenberg, in his uncertainty principle, still basically reach this impossibility to get, uh, to get, uh, to get uh, position and velocity, whatever, movement, at the same time, two complementary properties, still reads it in an epistemological way. While Bohr emphasizes this in a very refined critique of Heisenberg, that Heisenberg didn't get the point, that this impossibility is in the thing itself. Okay. First, how does all this appear within psychoanalysis, this incompleteness of society? In a Kantian way, we can say that uh, the incompleteness of ontology, of the structure of reality, means that in order to make our experience of reality consistent, we have to supplement our experience by some kind of a virtual fiction. This, as Lacan was aware, was aware this was already a lesson done by Bentham, whose, again, theory of fictions, I think it is even now recently reprinted in the uh, radical classics or whatever, by Verso, a choice of, uh, don't underestimate it. He is precisely not doing what you would have expected a simple British empiricist to do. His point is not that we should aim at getting rid of fictions to see reality in a nominalist way, the way it really is. His point is a nicely paradoxical one. Yes, we can distinguish what is fiction and what is reality. But if we take away the fiction, we lose reality itself. It's impossible to describe, to grasp reality without uh, fictions. I think that this same point was made in a beautiful way by, again, haha, my old guy, Gilbert Keith Chesterton, where when he says, uh, uh, a wonderful quote, literature and fiction are two entirely different things. Literature is a luxury, Fiction is a necessity. Uh, so, uh, what do I mean by this necessity of fictional supplement? Uh, years ago, I remember seeing a caricature in a German weekly publication. I'm not sure, I think it was Stern, Der Stern, but this was like 30, 40 years ago. It, of course, it mocked the male hypocrisy. It showed five men, each of them asked in a caricature, what, what uh, would you like to do during your summer holiday? And each of them gives an answer, but then in this kind of a cloud, no, uh, it shows what he really thinks. 
Each of, for example, one says, I would like finally to have time to read a, a, a good philosophical book. The cloud shows a naked woman. The other one said, I would like to go to a serious music concert. The cloud shows a naked woman, and so on and so on. So it's this tasteless point that, you know, don't bluff. We all want to do just like that. I claim this is strictly wrong. I claim that uh, we all know that we want to do that. But the question is, in what precise way do we want to do that? So much closer to the truth would have been the opposite caricature. You ask five men, what would you like to do? And probably you will get a sincere answer screw many ladies, whatever, but then the cloud should show, you know, one of them wants to seduce a lady while reading a book, the other one by walking on a beach, and so on and so on. No, it's precisely that uh, you cannot do it directly. You need a fiction. You need a fiction to do it. And I think that uh, even when we are in reality, this <coughs> fiction has somehow to supplement reality in what way? Here we come to the beauty of things. I'm not claiming that oh, part of our reality doesn't really exist, it's fictional. I claim it's almost something of the opposite, that even if all we perceive is reality, part of it is the way we perceive it in our psychic economy, structured like or functions as a fiction. And I think this is cinema, as already mentioned once maybe here, this is cinema at its best. Not to reproduce so well a fiction, stage it so well that we mistake fiction for reality, but to show only reality, but to make us experience it as a magical fiction. Uh, I will give you immediately an example about the film to which, haha, my small moment of glory, you buy the DVD, you will get comments by me, that uh, 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 Alfonso Cuaron's Children of Men. But now I'm a bad guy, I always talk bad against the back, uh, 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 behind their back on people. So I would say that, first, of course, I'm a Hegelian. This means when I made those comments, I didn't see the film. No, I don't need the reality. But more important, when I saw the film, I discovered something which demonstrates that Quaron is a good cinema director, but not such a good thinker. He did something very nice, but I checked it up with him, wasn't aware of it. Namely, if you saw the movie, you know, Clive Owen, Infertility, blah, blah, blah. Uh, uh, at the very end of the film, uh, Clive Owen, the hero, Theo, or whatever, and the black girl, who is the first, after I don't know how many years in the entire humanity, of getting pregnant, go out on a small boat to a sea where uh, some kind of uh, 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 some kind of uh, uh, some kind of ship with laboratories in it called tomorrow, where allegedly they will solve the problem of fertility, is awaiting of them. And Clive Owen, wounded, dies. And the idea is, nonetheless, she, the black girl who is pregnant, 
will get to the ship where they will analyze her, she will save humanity, restore fertility. Now, to me, it seems so obvious that although it is shot like reality, that the proper way to read it that no ship, of course, that this was this is the dying dream of the hero, no? That the ship is pure appearance. Quaron wasn't aware of this ambiguity, but strangely enough, most of my friends were almost most of the people that I talked to claimed that liked precisely this radical ambiguity. Although it's shot like reality, it functions like a, a magic deus ex machina apparition. Or to give you another example that I already used in my books, I watched them three, four times, they're boring because of my son, those uh, 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 Home Alone series. <laughs> Did you notice something like two-thirds of the film is more or less not quite realistic? But then the reason we watch, at least I do, this kind of films is that, you know, for usually it's the last 20 minutes when the small kid sets the trap and then all horrible things, you know, happen to the two bad guys. Now, that is pure cartoon logic, physically impossible, like, you know, the bad guy, uh, his head starts burning. So he runs to the toilet, puts his head into the toilet bowl, but the, 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 the small evil child uh, 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 predicted this. So, of course, instead of water, there is oil, there is uh, gasoline there, so alcohol, so the head explodes. Like any, But again, what I like is how it's still shot realistically, in the sense of supposed to be part of reality. But somehow we know we know we passed from, from reality to fiction, in a way. This, I think, again, is, for me at least, uh, the cinematic art at its best. And this is, again, how our reality is structured. So, okay, let's now go on patiently about how Lacan tries to formalize sexual difference. Of course, we, you probably know the ABC, which is Lacan proposed the so-called formulas of sexuation, where the masculine side is defined by the universal function and its exception. Like all X, all entities are submitted to a certain function, but then there is one which is at least one which is the exception. Masculine side, the feminine side, you have the paradox of non-all, le pas tout. There is no exception, but for that very reason, the set is non-all, non-totalized. Uh, to give you a simple philosophical example of this, I think that for Lacan, the passage from early to late Wittgenstein would have been a clear example. The early Wittgenstein is masculine, you know, it proposes his tractatus, a certain universal structure with the exception of the mystical and so on and so on. What the late Wittgenstein does is uh, he no longer talks about this mystical exception. There is no exception, but for this reason, you cannot totalize language instead of simple universal structure, you get only these partial family resemblances and so on and so on. So again, you get first 
universality with an exception, then you get this irreducible plurality of language gains. There is nothing outside them, but they are not all. You cannot uh, totalize them. It's a little bit like another reference to my terrifying experiences with children. For five years, I'm totally terrorized. I spent hundreds of dollars for, if some of you have also the misfortune of having children or knowing them, do you know what is Yu-Gi-Oh? Those magic cards, blah, blah, no? My son doesn't have too many of them, just around 10,000, I would say, no? And, but what fascinates me, and I think we adults are already too senile, too stupid, even to understand, is that I think they are a nice example of the feminine non-all. Because in contrast to a standard, either card game or chess game, where you have certain universal rules, and then you, you have elements and you have to use them obeying those rules. The madness, you really must be a child with your far superior to us memory, is that here each card, in a way, brings its own rule. You know, it's, the point is not that you have a card which is simply worth more than another card within a certain set of rules. No, you must look closely at those small letters which say, if you have this card and if you have uh, uh, an attack card, you see it on the opponent side, then you can revive another card and kill all the opponents on condition that the opponent doesn't have that. It's absolute nightmare, I mean. <laughs> but I like this idea. It's incredibly complex. And I just admire small children. They can, they can remember thousands of cards, literally, all these double, triple uh, tricks. Okay, let's go on. Uh, Lacan's logic of universality and its constitutive exception is not as simple as it may appear. It's not simply, you know, this old wisdom, haha, an exception to every universality. No, no, it's not wisdom. Lacan is very precise here. First, it goes still, we will go much more in detail later. Now, first, at the abstract level, first, I think we have three steps here. First, there is, Lacan's thesis, an exception to every universality. Every universality contains a particular element which, while formally belonging to this universality, sticks out, doesn't fit its frame. I will not bore you with the examples that I am already bored by them, that I always use, like in Marx, for example, I claim that in the Marxian classification of the modes of production, obviously, the, and here I am an honest anti-Eurocentrist, that the so-called Asiatic mode of production is this kind of exception. I mean, if you read Marx closely, you will see what is going on. No? Marx originally did propose just the Eurocentric series, that is to say, primitive, whatever you call them, tribal societies, slavery, feudalism, capitalism, and whatever the hell is maybe coming after. Uh, now, uh, uh, then Marx, honestly, he was honest enough to notice that there are some societies, social formations, modes of production, which fit neither of these. And I claim a close analysis demonstrates that the so-called Asiatic mode of production is not really a positive, it appears to be a positive concept. 
but in reality is just a kind of a negative container. Marx simply threw into that one what didn't fit the others. You know, it's like that joke from Borges quoted at the beginning of Foucault, Le Moyle, Le Chaux, where you have that famous list of categorization of dogs. At the, at the end, you have all the dogs which doesn't belong to this list or whatever. I mean, of course, it's not as simple as that, but you can see how Marx was struggling and wasn't, himself wasn't sure if you can really put ancient Egypt, ancient Incas, ancient China, at all, if you can really put them within the same umbrella. So again, we have the exception. Then you have to do the next step. And I hope you will notice, if you know Marx here, the parallel between this gradual expansion of the exception and the so-called three moment stages of the expression of the value form in the at the beginning of Marx's capital, then you, of course, discover that everything is an exception. That every, and this is the basic rule of Hegel. I already made this point. I would like to repeat it. This is what I like about Hegel. You know, here you can see that Hegel was a materialist in a radical sense. For Pla Plato, Platonists, uh, and I here I have a problem with my good friend, Alain Badiou, I totally sympathize with his rehabilitation of Plato against Aristotle. But uh, uh, I think there are some problems. Like, uh, you know, if Plato's state is something, it's uh, based on a corporate image of society. The notion of justice that you find there is precisely this corporate notion of uh, justice means each at his or her own place. And I claim that you, there is nonetheless no way to, although Badiou is now, as you probably know, retranslating Plato's Republic, it's almost finished incidentally, into French uh, with the subtitle Republic or about communism, no? <laughs> Trying to reread it as a com. It's a wonderful thing what he is doing. He is, for example, uh, replacing uh, when Plato says a sophist is trying to seduce the crowd, uh, Alain put into, translated as a corrupted bourgeois journalist <laughs> is publishing an article and so on in the popular press. But I think that here you get a problem. So for Plato, Example is always deficient with regard to an idea, no? Like examples are imperfect, but for Hegel there also is always a gap between an idea and the way you try to exemplify it. But for Hegel it's the opposite that it's true. You exemplify an idea and there is more in the example than in the idea itself. So that the example which is supposed to illustrate an idea effectively always uh, undermines it. And one can even say that this is one of the basic matrices of the Hegelian process. How do things go on in Hegel's dialectic? You have a certain notion, form of life, and Hegel doesn't criticize it so that he measures it by an ideal standard. He does say, let's exemplify it. Let's look how it works. And then the example itself 
gives more. You probably know, again, one of the great moments of Hegelian, what Lacan calls la longue, reference to workplace, contingency of language. Hegel does here a consciously wrong etymology. You know that the German term for example is Beispiel, something which, as it were, plays itself along. And for Hegel, this is precisely example. Like, I want only this, but that shitty example comes along and ruins it. No, I mean, I get more than I asked for in an example. Okay, so, uh, so then we have this paradox that every example is an exception. But then we have the third stage, which would have fitted somehow this notion of universal equivalent in Marx, in Hegel, that nonetheless, all examples like exceptions are not equal. That if all examples are exception, there is always an exception to exception, which is an example which, precisely as a double exception, immediately gives body to universality as such. And in this precise sense, Hegel, for example, you should be careful to know these details. He calls Jesus Christ an example of example or an absolute example. Precisely in this sense that, you know, everything is an example, but then you get an absolute example, an absolute exception, which is precisely the place where, in the guise of its opposite, universality itself comes to exist. Okay, the classical example again, known to all of you, what if Jacques Rancière even more than but you uh, uh, conceptualize as that part of the social body, the part of no part, which is those who are without proper place within the social body and as such stand for its universality. Okay, but let's go on. So, the starting point of Lacan's formulas of situation is Aristotle. Why? Aristotle, as you know, this is the ABC of history of philosophy. You all know that for Aristotle, an entity, ontological unit, as it were, something existing, is composed of form and matter. Morphe, hile, whatever, I'm not good at that. Uh, 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 now, there is a problem here, as all perspicuous readers of Aristotle noticed. On, you find, to put it very simply, an inconsistency or contradiction here, which undermines such the very uh, foundation of Aristotelian ontology. On the one hand, in a more traditional Platonic mode, uh, Aristotle claims that form is universal, while matter Hile is the individualizing element, no? Like, to put it very simply, these are chairs, their idea is the same. They all, this chair and that chair, or if there were to be others, the same. They all imitate, copy, realize the same universal idea. What makes them different is the stuff, the matter. The, no? Otherwise, if you take away the matter, this and this would be absolutely the same, namely the same idea. Matter multiplies them. At the same time, Aristotle, nonetheless a serious philosopher, is uh, intelligent and honest enough to also pursue the opposite path. Namely that, 
precisely if you take the forum away from this and that chair, all you get is the, is the forumless universal matter. So you see the point that it's precisely, you can also claim that it's precisely the opposite. If I take the forum away, we just get the neutral base stuff matter. So that it is forum, not matter, which is the individualizing principle. Of course, Hegel is absolutely for this second solution, because it's much closer to his idealism, that the plurality, the concrete, concrete content comes out of the self-movement.